Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for all that you've provided for us. And Lord, we thank you for Urban Ministries, Lord, and, and the ministry that they, that they do in five points. And Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on that place. Lord, we pray that the gospel would be real there, that hope would be real there, that forgiveness would be real there, that reconciliation would take place, and that, Lord, you would save men and women and Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to partner with Duane in that ministry. And Lord, this morning, I pray that the same would take place right here. That Heavenly Father, we would be united in our commitment to you, our love for you. That Lord, we would have joy in our hearts. Lord, we pray for safety from enemies. And Lord, we pray that our lives would reflect the holiness that you desire. Lord, we pray that you would get us back on track in the mission that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 9, it says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world which hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. It was Roy Lauren, who is a close companion of Billy Graham, who in writing about this particular passage, he said the context of Jesus prayers is as significant as the content. And I was startled and surprised all over again, because the context, of course, is this large shadow. And the large shadow that looms as he is praying is the shadow of the cross. Jesus' hour has come. In a matter of moments, he is going to be taken. He is going to be arrested. He is going to be incarcerated. He is going to be tortured. He is going to be killed. He is praying this prayer in a very real sense. As a last prayer, it's an intercessory prayer. Now, of course, there is going to be more prayer that's going to take place in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cross looks like it's the end for Jesus, but it becomes the beginning for us. And so he has a series of prayer requests. And what are those requests? In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 9, he prays for the apostles. In verses 20 through 26, he is going to be praying for future believers in every generation. In the prayer of Jesus, we learn in part that in verses 1 through 5, we share his life. In verses 6 through through 12, we know his name. In verses 13 through 19, we have his word. And in verses 9 through 12, Jesus prays for unity. And in verse 13, he prays for joy. In verses 14 through 16, he prays for safety. In verses 17 through 19, he prays for holiness or sanctification. And so it continues with 
unity. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, I don't know if you're one of those kinds of people who, when you read your Bible, you underline certain things. But this is one of those underlining moments when Jesus says, I pray for them. It's more than just a prayer. We're getting a glimpse into what the prayer life of Jesus is like. And we know from the writer of Hebrews that the Bible says that Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for you. You've come to church this morning. But Jesus is in heaven and he's praying for you. Haven't you ever wondered what those prayers are like? What does he say about you and for you? This gives us a clue. I pray for them. I want to remind you that them is a little bit detached and a, and a little bit impersonal. Here, he is praying for the, the apostles and the disciples, but make no mistake about it. It wouldn't be inappropriate for you to put your name in that sentence. I pray for Gino. I pray for John. I pray for Martha. I pray for Mary. I pray for Louis. I pray for Carla. I pray. And then you put your name in there because Jesus is praying for you. And it says, I do not pray for the world. He says, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And that too becomes important. Those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This opens up a horizon that is almost inconceivable. But let me try and put some words to what is being prayed. Jesus cares about what the Father cares about. And shock and surprise. The thing that the Father cares about is you. The Father cares about your life. Your life matters. Your ministry matters. Your life and your circumstance matters both to the Father and to the Son. Jesus cares about what the Father cares about. And it sets a standard for us. Because guess what? When you begin to care about the things that, that God cares about, it opens up a whole new horizon for you to pray. And here Jesus declines to pray for those who are in the world at this point in the narrative. Briefly, I need to help you understand that. Jesus, when he uses the term the world, he means the world that stands in opposition to God. It isn't the, the, the earth and the sky and the planets and the solar system and the galaxy and then the farthest reaches of our galaxy. He's not talking about the sum and the substance, the energy and the matter and all that makes up this vast complex that we call the universe. He's talking about human beings. He's talking about spirit beings. He's talking about those who are in the world who stand in opposition to the things of Christ and the things of God. Well, does this mean that Jesus hates sinners? No, clearly both the Father and the Son love sinners. That's what it says in John chapter 3, verse 16. The fallen world, the lost world, is the very reason why Jesus came to the earth. He came to save sinners. Is the lost and fallen world in need of prayer? Clearly it is in need of prayer. And Jesus will pray for them. Jesus will go to a cross. He will be suspended between heaven and earth. And he will pray for the conversion and the forgiveness of human beings. In Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verse 34, it says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided his garments and cast lots. In a moment of pain and in a moment of pressure, he prays. For the lost world, but here he's praying for you and he's praying for me. He's praying for the apostles and the disciples in every generation. And in verse 10, it says, and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. 
Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has made extraordinary claims. He's, he's claimed to come from the Father. He's claimed to be the light of the world. He's claimed to be the bread that's come down from heaven. He's claimed to be the way and He's claimed to be the truth and He's claimed to be the life. In verse 10, when He says, and all mine are yours, we're not shocked or surprised. That's a prayer that you could hopefully easily pray. Hopefully you could say everything that I have and everything that I am, my ability to speak, my ability to see, my ability to comprehend, my ability to come to church this morning, my ability to go to school, my ability to work, everything that I have, everything that I am belongs to God. It's the next part that's shocking. And yours are mine. What? And yours are mine. What? Jesus is making the claim that everything God owns and everything God possesses and everything that God embraces belongs to him. Jesus is claiming that the attributes of God and the prerogatives of God and the privileges of God and the possessions of God belong to him. And that would be the most... Stupid thing anyone could ever pray. Unless it's true. And I need to ask you a question so far as you've looked at the life and you've looked at the ministry and you've looked at the works and you've looked at everything that Jesus does and has done so far. Does he seem to be the kind of person who's crazy? But that's exactly what he is. Or he's God. That's the point that's being made in John chapter 17, verse 10, when it says, and all mine are yours and yours mine. And look what it says. And I am glorified in them. Remember, we've already looked at what the word glorified means. It means that there's a weight and a substance because the attributes and the work in the ministry is revealed. Something is revealed in the character of God and in the character of Christ by the things that you say and the things that you do. How is Jesus glorified by you? The moment you're saved, the moment that you embrace his love and his will, you glorify him because the reason for him coming now comes to fruition. And in verse seven, chapter 17, verse 11, look what it says. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Some have seen in Christ's prayer a, a divine desire for ecumenical unity. People have said, look, here's Jesus praying. Why can't the Catholics and the Protestants be one? Why can't the Charismatics and the non-Charismatics be one? Why can't the Presbyterians and the Baptists be one? Well, Jesus insists that unity is organic and permanent and that it truly does exist for those who are in the Father and in the Son. Jesus says that unity is based on the work of grace and the word of God. Read it for yourself in verse six. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. You see, unity has a border. And you know what the border is? Truth. Unity doesn't extend beyond truth, but it's contained within truth. If unity is a meaningful word, it means undivided and unbroken. When Jesus says that they may be one as we, in what way are the Father and the Son one? Are, you not, are they united in their purpose? 
Are they united in their privileges? Are they united in their plan? Are they united in all that they want to do in your life? Are they united in redemption? Are they united in salvation? Are they united in justification? Are they united in the plan that God has to bring to fruition that Jesus Christ will be King of kings and Lord of lords? That's the kind of unity that is talking about. Unity means undivided and unbroken. And clearly the opposite of united is divided. We live in a world of divisions, don't we? In the world of the first century, the world in which Jesus is teaching and preaching, the world was broadly divided into two categories, Jews and Gentiles. But really, it was Italians and people who wished they were. They were the ones who were ruling the world. The divisions continue. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, believer and unbeliever. It's because we live in a broken world. A fallen world. The broken world, the fallen world is clearly broken and clearly fallen and clearly divided. And in verse 12, when he's talking about the prayer for unity in verse 12, he says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. That is in his earthly ministry in this fallen planet. He kept them in God's name. And what is God's name? I am that I am the self-existent being. Remember, the name is more than just the name, Hashem. It means more than just a name that you give to deity, but it is all that that deity implies. The eternal God, the self-existent God, the everlasting God, the uncreated God, the sovereign God. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. What does that mean? What it means is clearly safe. I have kept them safe. I have kept them for a reason and for a purpose. They have lasted with me throughout the course of the ministry and they will keep and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. When Jesus prays, those whom you gave me, I have kept again. What is that keeping power? It's the power to preserve. Does this mean that he kept them from hardship or trial or suffering or pain? It can't mean that because there is hardship. There was trial. There was suffering and there was pain and there would continue to be hardship and there would continue to be trial and there would continue to be suffering and there would continue to be pain. And so he isn't keeping them from those things. He's keeping them through those things. Because the pain and the trial and the suffering and the circumstances. The Lord wants to be with you and to keep you. And so, if we follow Jesus, the Father answers the prayer of the Son. Because the Father has given all true believers to the Son. That's the claim. We might say in the request for unity, Jesus is reminding the Father concerning all of the earlier requests of security and assurance. And if you read chapter 17, verse 2 and verse 6 and verse 9 and verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 24, there's this reoccurring theme, assurance, security, keep them Keep them. We're left with this breathtaking assurance that nothing will separate the true Christian believer from the Son. We sang it this morning. I belong. I belong. Not distance, not danger. I belong. You know, I get asked a lot of questions, probably more than the average person. I get questions about God. I get questions about the historical Jesus. I get questions about the Bible. I get questions about theology. I get questions I don't particularly care for, like tongues, tithing, and baptism, but I answer them. 
Do you know what my favorite question is? And maybe you asked this question. Maybe when no one was looking, maybe when the room was dark and the lights were out and maybe you even folded your hands and maybe you even closed your eyes and you prayed a prayer and the prayer went something like this. Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want? That's a big question, isn't it? Every once in a while I get asked that question. What does God want from me? And you know what? I'm always happy to reply. He wants you to believe him. And he wants you to trust him. Isn't that true? Isn't that exactly what God wants? He wants you to believe him and he wants you to trust him. And we're left again with this breathtaking assurance that the believer is secure in Christ for so many reasons. The believer is secure because of the nature of God, because of the nature of salvation, because of the glory of God. And if that weren't enough, if it weren't just simply the nature of God, if it wasn't just simply the nature of salvation, if it wasn't just simply the glory of God, we can now add the intercessory ministry of Jesus. He's praying for you. This is what Jesus is asking from the Father for you. And can you in your wildest dreams, can you in your wildest imagination imagine the Father going no. As a matter of fact, you might get a different voice that whispers. Hey, Pastor, read the rest of the sentence. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Hey, Jesus, you lost one. And if he lost one, he could lose two. Here, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. And look at the text itself. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. And if you don't know what perdition means, it means the consequences of judgment. Perdition is a word that is used to describe hell. That's where perdition takes place. The consequences of rebellion and disobedience. And Jesus himself says that the scripture might be fulfilled the idea being in Psalm 41 9 there was written the fact that the, a close companion of the Messiah would betray the Messiah so why did he fall why wasn't he secure why didn't Jesus keep him safe you may not like my answer But the answer is really, really simple, like most Bible answers are. Number one, the answer is so that the scripture might be fulfilled. There it is right there in the text. But there's another reason, and it's an even more simple reason. Judas never belonged to Jesus. Judas was never born again. Jesus did keep all who were given to him by the father. Judas was not a believer. And if you don't believe me, go to John chapter six, verses 64 through 71. And there it will outline it for you. Judas wasn't a believer. Judas was never cleansed in John chapter 13, verse 11. Judas was never among the chosen in John chapter 13, verse 18. Judas was never given to Jesus Turn the page in John chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. Jesus said, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way that might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. All that are given by the father to the son are retained. Wearsby says it well. No, Judas is not an example of a believer who lost his salvation. He's an example of an unbeliever who pretended to have salvation, but was finally exposed as a fraud. Jesus keeps all whom the father gives to him, unquote. 
there really are believers and there are really non-believers. And there are really make-believers. And a make-believer can come to church. A make-believer could even come to this church. A make-believer could have a Bible. And and that make-believer could have the Bible open right at this very moment. And the make-believer might be able to recite all of the books in the Bible. And they may know a whole lot about the Bible, but they don't know what the Bible's all about. How is that possible? How can you know a lot about the Bible and yet not know what the Bible is all about? It's easy. If you read the Bible for exactly the wrong reason. You know, on my radio program, I do have a few callers who call me almost on a somewhat regular basis. And they're not interested in knowing what the Bible says. They're interested in looking for a fault. They're looking for a difficulty. They're looking for a a contradiction. They're looking for some reason not to believe that the Bible is true. And so they ask me. In the hopes that the Bible isn't true so that they can continue living a life of rebellion and disobedience, deceit apart from God. There's a request for unity, but there's also a request for joy. Look what it says in verse 13. But now I come to you. Jesus still continues to pray. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus prays for unity. Now Jesus prays for what we might call tranquility, joy. He's talked about it in John chapter 15, verse 11. For those of you who are with me, remember in John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You see, for the Christian, joy is is that internal condition which results from knowing that you have a right relationship with God. Morgan, uh, Robert J. Morgan said in a sermon, happiness is an emotion and joy is an attitude. Emotions come and go, but attitudes come and grow. Isn't that good? Feelings, emotions come and go, but joy is an attitude that comes and grows. It's something that wells up inside of you when you understand something. That God doesn't hate you, that He loves you. That your sins aren't still to your account, but you're forgiven. And that you're really, in fact, going to heaven. C.S. Lewis wrote, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of of a holiday at sea. It's his way of, English way of saying, why would you play in an inner city slum and make mud pies when you could have this lavish extravaganza by the beach. That's what it's like to to experience the joy of Jesus. Norman Grubb tells the story of C.T. Studd, a Bible teacher and a missionary, and Studd once traveled to China on a ship whose captain was a bitter opponent of Christianity. And he studied the Bible For the sole purpose of finding what he thought were the problems and the errors, the inconsistencies and the difficulties. Been there, done that. He loved to bait missionaries on his ship. And when he learned that Stud was on board his ship, the captain lit into him. Tell me what you think about God. Tell me what you think about salvation. Tell me what you think about heaven and hell. If there is such a thing, why is there evil in the world? If there is such a thing as God, then how do you explain 780, now 1 billion Hindus? How do you explain 1.3 billion Muslims? How how do you explain another billion um, naturalists and evolutionists? How do you explain that if there is really a God, why do so many people believe so many different things? But instead of arguing with him, Stud put his arm around him. And he said, friend, 
I have the peace that passes all understanding. And a joy, a joy that nothing can take away. And the cat kept baiting him and baiting him. I have peace and I have joy. I have peace and I have joy. And finally, the captain just said, you lucky dog. And he went away. But before the ship found its port in China, the captain found himself on his knees, his heart broken. Because there comes a time when your doubt and your unbelief and your willingness to sin and your willingness to remain in a life of rebellion and disobedience, the emptiness wells up inside of you and the guilt begins to haunt you and you want to have a right relationship with God because what it is that you really want is peace and you really want joy. And that's why, by the way, friends, when you talk with your family and you talk with your friends and they want to fight with you and they want to argue with you. And then all of a sudden you find yourself just as belligerent and just as loud and just as wicked. The most effective tool that you have is gone. Because the most effective tool that you have isn't a right answer to a difficult question. It's a right heart that's filled with peace and filled with joy. Jesus prays for unity. Jesus prays for tranquility. But now Jesus prays for safety. Look at verse 14. It says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Look carefully again in verse 14 where it says, I have given them your word. It's singular. It's not plural. It doesn't say words. It says word. And Jesus uses that term because he's talking about the sum and the substance, the entire expression of all that he has said. It is not just one message. It's every message. I have given them your word and the word is the message that Jesus has delivered on behalf of the father to a watching world. What is the word that he's delivered? I came from God. The word that he delivered is you're a sinner in need of a savior. The word that he has delivered is that God is willing to accept you and not reject you on the basis of what I'm about to do for you. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world. You see, the moment that Jesus gives you the word and the moment you believe that word and the moment that you embrace that word, the world begins to hate you because you no longer love what it loves. I know. I used to be that person in the world. I used to be the person who hated Christians and marginalized Christians and humiliated Christians and persecuted Christians. Jesus says in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And right at this very moment when Jesus says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. He is disappointing a lot of people in a lot of places. Especially if you've ever prayed that prayer. Get me out of here. Lord, I don't want to be here anymore. Have you ever prayed a prayer where you go, God, why did you save me? Why didn't you just kill me right at the moment that that you saved me so that I wouldn't have to deny you, so I wouldn't have to to disappoint you, so that I wouldn't have to fail you? Why didn't you just kill me? Because guess what? God isn't interested in killing you yet. You know, in the scriptures, there are numerous requests to be taken out of the world. Moses prayed that prayer. Elijah prayed that prayer. Jonah prayed that prayer. And you know what all of their prayers have in common? They were all denied. 
No, Moses. No, Elijah. No, Jonah. And you can look it up for yourself in Numbers chapter 11, verse 15, and 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, and Jonah chapter 4, verses 3, and, and, and verse 8. God has a different plan. Oh, you will go when the time is right. In verse 16, it says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, you are not of the world. That's what the New Testament writer says when he says your citizenship isn't on the earth, but it is in heaven. We are aliens and strangers in this world. The world is a place that's cursed. And it received the curse from our first parents. Our world is cursed. And because it's cursed, it contains all kinds of perils. And those perils result in divisions. And those divisions make for problems. A Christian's safety doesn't, doesn't lie in, in taking the Christian away from the world or removing them from the world. There are, by the way, two great temptations that Christians face. One is to become isolated from the world. And the other is to be assimilated into the world. Jesus didn't save you to isolate you from the world. And Jesus didn't save you so that you would be assimilated by the world. But rather, that you'd be transformed. Paul gives the advice in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. In the first century, second century, third century, there were people who made monasteries. They built castles in the middle of the desert in order to escape the filth and the contamination and pollution of the world. But guess what? No matter where they went, they took the filth, contamination and pollution with them because the filth and the contamination and the pollution was right in their own heart. And so you might think, I just wish I just wish I never had to deal with unbelievers. I just wish that I could go to church and I just wish that I could read my Bible and I wish that I could just watch Christian TV. Well, you should take that off of your wish list. Because the Lord isn't interested in isolating you. There's a reason why the Lord wants you to be salt and light. Perhaps there's never been a greater temptation to conform the now. We're living in a world that wants you to think like it thinks and talk like it talks and act like it acts. So Jesus prays for unity. Jesus prays for safety. Jesus prays for joy. Jesus prays for sanctification. Look in verse 17. It says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. By the way, we sanctify something when we set it apart for a specific use. In this instance, when Jesus says sanctify them by your truth, he is in effect saying set them apart and set them apart on the basis of truth. And what he supposes truth, it's the truth about God and it's the truth about Jesus. I have a container. And my container is only for brewed tea. You can ask my wife. You can ask my children. There's this jar that I have. It's not for milk. It's not for water. It's not for sewage. It has one purpose and one purpose only. It is for my iced tea. And oddly enough, Christian, when you're saved, when you're saved from wrath and you're saved from hell and you're saved from the consequences of sin and you're set apart for a specific purpose. You're set apart by Jesus. To glorify the father and to glorify the son. I don't have time, but I just want to tell you quickly 
There's positional sanctification and progressive sanctification and what I call permanent or eternal sanctification. And let me just tell you, when a person believes and receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, the person is immediately set apart by God permanently once and for all. And then there is this progressive sanctification. The true believer makes a determined and disciplined effort to allow the Holy Spirit of God to conform the child of God into the image of Jesus Christ. And so that every moment of every day when you wake up in the morning, the Holy Spirit has a goal and it's to make you a little bit more like Jesus that day. And if you're wondering why he doesn't answer your prayer to take you out of the world. It's because he has some unfinished business with you. He's laying the foundation. He's filling in the gaps, the creases. And then there's permanent eternal sanctification. The day will come when each and every believer is perfectly set apart by God perfect to God in service without sin and without failure. And you know, that day, that great and glorious day is the day you die. And you will step into eternity sanctified. In John's Gospel, We've been given the truth. The truth about God and the truth about God's son and the truth about God's mission. We study the word of God with our head. But we love the God of the Bible with our heart. And the process of sanctification isn't limited to our head. But it's also continues in our heart. And look at verse 18. It says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. How did the father send the son into the world? Prophetically. Supernaturally. The father sent the son prophetically and supernaturally. Jesus has prayed for unity in verse 11, security in verse 12, tranquility in verse 13, protection in verse 14, sanctification in verse 17. But verse 18 is really a prayer about mission. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. The father sent the son united, secure, joy. Safe. And Jesus is sending you into the world. United. Filled with security and joy and safe. The father sent the son into the world with a mission. It was to reflect the glory of God and to present the message of God. We're to be a witness to the world. The Father sent Jesus and now Jesus sends us. And how can you be a witness to the world of Christ's power and change if there is no change? And that's why sanctification becomes such an important point in the prayer. It's unite them, fill them with joy, keep them safe, make them holy. Because if your heart is a heart of peace and if your heart is a heart of joy, guess what? It will leak out and become evident. The father sent the son on a mission. The father sent the son to do the work and to finish the work. And so here it becomes the father's goals are Christ's goals. The father's mission is Christ's mission. The father's plan is Christ's plan. And so your goal, your objective, your mission becomes all that Jesus has and wants for you. The father sent the son to engage in redemptive service. Question. Were you sent to die for sins? No. So what does that mean? Sanctified service. I'm going to suggest to you. 
your life means something to God. Your life means something to Christ. Your life means something to the church of Jesus Christ. Your life means something to the world. And that world also includes redemptive service. You exist in order to serve Christ in this world. And you'll remember Jesus prays in verse 19, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. In what way does Jesus sanctify himself? Jesus has no sin. Jesus isn't cleaning up his heart. Jesus isn't getting rid of anything bad. No, he's setting himself apart to be a substitutionary atonement for you. He's setting himself apart so that he will be the sacrifice. He will be the offering. The sinless heart of Jesus is offering perfect obedience to the will of God. In this particular passage, Jesus is accepting the cross. He's making the claim that that cross is a sacrificial death and it is his divine right. So that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Here's the truth. You are set aside by God. So that you can be united to the Father and united to the Son and united to each other and filled with joy and filled with security. And so that you could be holy. And it says, in truth, in aletheia, we might read, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified for real, truly, that this is real and true. <laughs> so here's the prayer. Overcome the world. You overcome the world by the word of God. It enlightens you. It enables you. It encourages you. Jesus prays that we overcome and we do because we know his name, because we share his life, because we have his word and because we've experienced his. The consequences of his prayer. <laughs> no wonder D.L. Moody wrote in the front of his Bible. This book will keep you from sin. Or sin will keep you from this book. That's why we pay such close attention to the Bible. And that's why we pay such close attention to the Word of God. Because it becomes an infinite source of truth and value. How is it possible to know all about the Bible but not know what the Bible is all about? It's because you've never really known the God of the Bible. You've never experienced forgiveness or joy or hope. But that can all change. Because you see clearly the way isn't to just simply know all about the Bible, but it's to know what the Bible is all about. It's about a heavenly father who sends his son to die for you. Because the Father has always planned to give you as a gift. I want to close this very quickly with God's four answers to prayer. If the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. But if the request is right, if the timing is right, and if you are right, God says, go. Think about it for just a moment. Think about the request of Jesus. Wrong or right? Right. 
Think about the timing of Jesus. Wrong or right? Absolutely right. Think about the heart of Jesus. Wrong or right? Right. The prayer of Jesus is right. The timing of Jesus is right. The heart of Jesus is right. How can you lose? There is unity. There is joy. There is security. There is holiness. And security. For you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for the word of God, which is true. Lord, we know that one of the very first steps of carnal compromise is to neglect the word of God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would keep it open. And that we would keep our heart open. But, Lord, we wouldn't be content to simply know more about the Bible. But we would long to know what the Bible is all about. That, Lord, you would unite our hearts. That you would fill our hearts in friendship and fellowship with joy and peace. And in the process of transformation, Lord, that we would be willing to share Jesus with others. And Lord, I pray for that person right now who perhaps doesn't know you and has never known you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart. Lord, maybe they have questions and they said, I still have questions. But really what they want is an answer. An answer about the problem of peace. And the lack of joy. They want peace and they want joy. And they're willing to believe that perhaps the Father has given them to the Son. Would you like to know? It's easy. It's to pray a simple prayer. It's to say, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I'm in need of a Savior and I know that Jesus Christ is that Savior. Will you cleanse me from my sin? Will you set me aside? Will you wash my heart? And will you give me as a gift to the Son forever? If you pray that prayer, then God will hear that prayer. And he will honor that prayer. Do you want to know if you belong to Jesus? The answer is easy. Belong to Jesus. Believe him. And trust him. That's what he's always wanted. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.